Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Come Follow Me Today, a brief message to help us experience an additional spiritual moment in our otherwise complicated lives. My name is Caleb Sanford, and thank you for joining me as we accept Christ's invitation to follow him today. For those of you new to the show, we're studying the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, loosely following the study curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And today we're going to be in 3 Nephi chapters 11 and 12. In the last episode, we read about Jesus descending from heaven in the Americas to visit the Nephites after his resurrection and ascension into heaven that we read about in the Bible. As Jesus said in the book of John, quote, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. And I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd, end quote. So after Jesus arrives and allows the multitude to come forth one by one to feel the nail prints in his hands and feet, which we discussed in the last episode, the first thing he does is to call 12 disciples and give them the authority to baptize the people and teaches them how this should be done. He then says very clearly to them, quote, and there shall be no disputations among you as there have hitherto been. Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine as there have hitherto been. For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger, one against another. But this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. End quote. I think it's important to note here what Christ felt were the most important things to begin his teaching with. First, repentance and baptism. If the people won't commit themselves to God and follow Christ by entering the waters of baptism, then there's little point in Christ trying to teach anything beyond that. And then Christ makes clear to his new disciples that he does not want any arguments between them or the people about his doctrine. I imagine one of the saddest things that Christ has to witness is God's children fighting with each other, angry with each other. To watch those who who profess to be followers of Christ arguing and fighting about his teachings and doctrine must be heartbreaking for him. Jesus already has to watch us tear each other apart on social media, in the news, in Congress, on the streets, about political issues, social issues, racial issues, gender issues. But to have to watch us fighting about his teachings, that has to be too much. And so he makes it very clear immediately that he does not want that and tells his disciples that if any of them begin quarreling with each other about his doctrine, it's because the adversary has infiltrated their hearts. Well, after addressing his new disciples, he turns his attention back to the masses and says, quote, Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized, after that ye have seen me and know that I am. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because that ye shall testify that ye have seen me and that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words and come down into the depths of humility and be baptized, for they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost and shall receive a remission of their sins. End quote. So for these people who have now physically witnessed their Savior and now make the choice to follow Christ and be baptized, blessed are they. But Christ makes it clear that even more blessed are those who do not get a personal witness of Christ 
but nevertheless humble themselves and believe on the words of others, and still choose to follow Christ and be baptized. This teaching really hits home for me, because as I was learning about the gospel of Jesus Christ 13 years ago, I kept getting hung up on feeling like I needed to really know that everything was true that I was learning. I needed to know that Christ was my savior. I needed to know that he had restored his church to the earth through modern day prophets. I needed to know that this book of Mormon that I was reading was the word of God. Well, I couldn't get there. I didn't know what that would mean to know these things were true. I couldn't feel the nail prints in Christ's hands like this group of Nephites were able to. And so I was stuck in this limbo for months and months while all my new gospel friends kept telling me I just needed to pray about all this and I would know. Really? Well, what I should have been doing is listening to Christ's own words here, believing on his teachings, humbling myself, accepting Christ as my savior, and choosing to move forward in faith despite not having received a firsthand witness of Christ. Eventually, I was able to do that, and here we are today. Well, Christ then begins to relay to the Nephites many of the same teachings that he gave to the people in Israel. If you just came from reading the Bible and were hoping for some fresh material, you're out of luck. But that's the point. Like Christ said, quote, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Christ wants all of God's children to be united. And so his teachings are the same whether we live in Israel, America, or anywhere else in the world. His first teachings that he gives to the Nephites are for those who are struggling, facing challenges in their lives. Quote, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are all the pure in heart, for they shall see God. End quote. He then turns to those who may be persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Quote, and blessed are all the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. For ye shall have great joy and be exceedingly glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the light of this people. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Behold, do men light a candle and put it under a bushel? Nay, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light to all that are in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before this people, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. End quote. Some of my favorite teachings of Christ are when he clarifies some of the Ten Commandments. Quote, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, and it is also written before you, that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment of God. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. Therefore, if he shall come unto me, or shall desire to come unto me, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, go thy way unto thy brother, and first be reconciled to thy brother. And then come unto me with full purpose of heart, 
and I will receive you, end quote. It's as if Christ is saying here, how can you expect to be my follower and share my gospel if you can't even be at peace with your own brothers, with your own neighbors, those who are closest around you? Go and make peace with them first, and then we'll bring that peace together to the rest of the world. Quote, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time he shall get thee, and thou shalt be cast into prison, end quote. I think this is a particularly important teaching today for us. Everyone seems to be fighting with each other today as adversaries. Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, people in favor of wearing masks versus people who don't think masks should be required, police funders versus police defunders, environmentalists versus pro-business groups, pro-life versus pro-choice, nominate a Supreme Court justice now versus wait until after the election. The list goes on forever. My interpretation of Christ's teaching here is to knock it off. We need to stop fighting. We need to, quote, agree with thine adversary quickly. Now, I don't think this necessarily means that we all have to have the same views on every issue. But what I think Christ is saying here is that we need to find common ground, find something to agree on with our adversaries, find some kind of value that we share, that we can use as a starting off point as we debate these other issues. Perhaps that's the fundamental point. Can we debate these issues calmly and rationally, with a common goal in mind, with a common love for each other, instead of just heartlessly tearing each other apart? Quote, Behold, it is written by them of old time, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. End quote. The current data on marriage shows that almost 40% of marriages will eventually end in divorce. I wonder how many of those are a result of one partner or the other just lusting after someone else, whether that was a real person or just someone they see on their computer screen. Quote, And behold, it is written also, that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But behold, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. End quote. If Heavenly Father loves everyone, even those who may be treating us badly, then shouldn't we strive to do the same? Now, all of these teachings from Christ are extremely hard to fulfill. It's hard to find common ground with those we disagree with. It's hard to not get upset with our family members. It's hard for many to not lust after others. And it's certainly difficult to find love for those that hate us. This makes Christ's next teaching even more stressful to think about. Quote, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. End quote. All right, well, if the previous teachings felt difficult for us, then this final instruction from Christ seems impossible. How are we supposed to be perfect like Christ and Heavenly Father? How can Jesus ask this of us? Well, here's my thought, and you can take it for what it's worth. In the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, Christ gave a similar admonition to the people, but it was worded a little bit differently. Quote, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. End quote. This was delivered to the people before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, before he ascended to heaven. His teaching to the Nephites came after that. 
While we tend to think about Jesus as having lived a perfect life, a man without sin, I'm not sure we can really know what was going on inside his mind during his life. And of course, we only have a short summary of his life in the New Testament. So it's possible that in Christ's view of himself, he may not have seen himself as perfect while he was yet walking the earth, and so didn't give himself as the example of perfection to the people in Israel. He was just trying to do God's will as best he could. And we know from some of the final chapters of his life that this was really hard for him to do. But after his resurrection and ascension into heaven, perhaps then he acknowledged that the process was complete, that he had now become perfect like Heavenly Father. He had reached his divine potential, and so was then able to instruct the Nephites to be perfect like both Heavenly Father and himself. Well, if this is the case, how does this help us? For me, it shows me a more realistic path forward. The teachings of Christ are difficult to live perfectly, but yet we should strive to do so. Christ asks us to follow him, to to take the same path that he took, to make the same types of decisions that he made. But if he didn't consider himself perfect during his own life, then why should we feel stress or guilt for not achieving perfection either? As long as we're progressing towards that end, towards our divine destiny and inheritance as children of God and joint heirs with Christ, then when the time comes that we are resurrected and ascend up to our Father in heaven, then we too, perhaps, will have finally reached perfection. So in 2020, I think all that really matters is that we are continuing to accept our Savior's invitation to follow him today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day. Perfection will come when it comes, But let's not let the idea of becoming perfect like Christ stand in the way of our daily progress, of the choices we make today to be more Christ-like, to be at peace with our families, to find common ground with those we disagree with, and to love those that curse us. Thank you for listening today, and I'll see you next time.